0: I'm Tanya Kelly. I'm currently the Director of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine in the Sunshine Coast, and also Director of Digital Transformation,
1: and most recently uh, the Incoming Chair of the Queensland Clinical Senate. Tanya, congratulations on your appointment as Senate Chair, and thank you very much for chatting with us today. We'll talk about your new role a bit later, but I just wanted to start with your career in medicine. What made you become a doctor? Oh, Rebecca. Let me let me think. So, you know, I, I went through school,
0: and um, I really had two passions. Uh, one was medicine. You know, I was really interested in that. The other one was sailing. And so, actually, when I started off at university and did a medical science degree, and was was going along there, and really uh, had an aspiration to be a doctor. Because of my local GP, so I was really fortunate. I had a female GP at a time when there weren't that many of them, and a fairly enlightened mother who used to, um, if I had a, a medical question or was making some uh, personal choices in my life, she'd often sort of say, "Why don't we just go and have a chat with your GP?" And so I had sort of you know the general you know coughs and colds type conversations, but also had the opportunity to have uh, deeper conversations with my GP and and you know really form a great sort of doctor patient relationship with her. And, you know, it's it's a bit like, you know, you can't be what you can't see type thing, or it's hard to be what you can't see. And I could really see something in, in what she was doing. And it was really modern at the time, as far as I could see and, and very meaningful to me. So that was sort of something I thought, oh, she's, she's making such a difference in my life. And how can I kind of do that? Uh, for others. Uh, Yeah, so that was sort of my my thinking around, around medicine. So I went along, did medical science, and then with that cohort, many people applied to medicine and I sort of did that with them. Uh, But on the side, at the end of my uh, undergraduate degree, um, I had this other passion and I really had in my mind that uh, what also would be good to do would be to be a a master mariner in merchant shipping. A little bit of a different thing, but one that having sort of a background in sailing and being at sea, I really, really wanted to do that. Uh, So I was studying at TAFE at night, doing my coxswains certificate and really looking to see if I could Perhaps uh, move into the Australian Maritime College in Launceston and do that. I didn't know how I was going to combine those two things or whatever, and yeah, possibly didn't have much of a sense at the time as to whether it was all possible. But that was kind of my my thinking at the time to join the AMC. At the time, uh, you needed to have employment with a shipping company, and so I went off and did these interviews with BHP and ASP Shipping, and. Um, I must have seemed a little bit sort of strange to them, you know, this young girl who was doing medical science at university who really wanted to be, you know, working on ships. And so it wasn't particularly successful in that. But that kind of thing remained in my life. So I've kept the passion alive in in sailing. And there've been lots of situations where the things that I have learnt in, in the sport of sailing, in the competitive sport of sailing, and also with being at sea have provided these really sort of rich learnings for my life in medicine.
1: We'll talk more about your sailing, but what then cemented your decision to continue on with medicine? Yeah,
0: so because of these things were both happening in parallel, I was successful in joining the graduate medical course at the University of Queensland and really started off doing that. I felt really, really lucky to be part of that cohort. It was really diverse. It was very interesting. And it was really the beginning in medicine in Queensland and really, really nationally in problem-based learning. And so we were the guinea pigs, if you like, going through that and really learnt medicine in this really sort of rounded way. And then that really sort of started the beginning of of, of my medical career, which, you know, I've
1: loved ever since. And Tanya, what about anaesthetics specifically? Why was it that you followed that specialty?
0: Oh yeah, look, it's an it's an interesting uh, career story, you know, I, I guess like everybody's. Yeah, I left medical school and really saw those early residency years as a year to years to get some really broad experience and uh, see some different health systems and and live in different states. So uh, I did my internship in Newcastle, another year in Perth, and then a year in Sydney, and I generally gravitated to those critical care specialties. Uh, I think, you know, what I came to understand is I I liked the sort of the mix of the the medicine and the procedural side of things, but I was really not, um, and I think like a lot of junior doctors, certain about where I wanted to be um, as you get more and more information and and you can see the sort of diversity and the vast array of things you can do. And, And I wasn't really wanting to close a lot of doors at the time. You know, once you sort of engage in a specialty, often you find that that's kind of where you go. So I was trying to remain quite broad. And then I I long hopped, I did do the Sydney to Hobart um, in uh, 1997, I think. And when I was down there, the Antarctic Division uh, had a a stall at Constitution Dock. And I remember going over there and sort of saying, oh, you know, is there any opportunity for for doctors? I was a medical student at the time. and, uh, And they said, well, you've got to be a doctor first, Tanya. Uh, but, you know, when you when you do that, uh, come and talk to us, but you need to stay broad. Um, so it always sort of was in my mind, you know, how do you sort of keep this breadth um, and this this sort of broader view? But I certainly did that. So in my fourth year out, I went to Antarctica and spent a year down there uh, working as an um, Antarctic medical practitioner at the Casey Station, and it was just a fantastic experience. I learnt a lot there. Uh, one of the things I'll share with you is when I was being sort of trained up, it took about uh, six months. To do all of the training, and, and again, really broad stuff. Uh, there was a there was a week of dentistry. You know, that my dental colleagues would you know um, cringe at that, but that, that's what what we had. And, um, and it was at the Royal Melbourne Dental Hospital. And there were you know lots of other sort of training. Um, I was had the opportunity to do an honorary surgical fellowship at the Austin to be able to sort of do a, um, a kind of a four quadrant pack and close of a a bleeding abdomen and things like that. One of the things that was most formative was the situation where in that training period, one of the um, directors of the polar medicine unit sat me down and said, now, Tanya, you can't fall out with anyone down there. And, uh, and, you know, I wasn't one that was sort of prone to falling out with people, but I I thought, uh, but, you know, I I, um, said, oh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll be really careful about that I'm not planning to have any major arguments, you know, but he said, no, 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 you really cannot fall out with anyone. Uh, And the reason for that is that you're the only medical practitioner down there. And if you um, have a problem with anyone on the station, you will deprive them of clinical care and access to clinical care. Well, I tell you, it was one of the most wonderful things you could do for a 27-year-old junior doctor to really give them this sort of real reason to employ absolutely every one of your skills to understand others, to be able to get on in what is a really constrained environment. You know, you've got 21 people um, over the winter, more in summer, uh, and you've really got to work out a way to get along. And to have that in your mind that I have to uh, make sure that each and every one of these people maintain access to medical care all year, uh, meant that your own priorities become secondary um, and you really are sort of working as a team for the team. And there were certainly situations where, uh, you know, I was challenged mm-hmm. um, as as you are um, in those kinds of environments. But by the end of the year, you know, you could tell who someone was in all of their clothing, uh, you know, 100 thousand metres away uh, from how they were. You knew what they ate, you knew you knew everything about them and I cared for them deeply. And it was, even though sometimes, you know, people's behaviours might not be their best selves, you know, in, in reunions we have to this today, we're, we're really um, a close unit from that formative experience. So yeah, so that was a, that was a wonderful thing. And then, you know, my story from there is I, I went from there to, to Darwin and did two years working up there in critical care. And that's really where I got my start in anaesthesia and uh, I had the opportunity to work in, era medical retrieval up there for quite a bit of time and uh, particularly heading out into indigenous communities and getting this really rich experience and understanding of some of the issues that come with living in remote communities and and it was just a an incredibly formative time on the back of that Antarctic experience to sort of really spend a lot of time in the top end. Uh, some of the things up there that were the most interesting with the time in ICU, and it was a really dynamic unit. It was really vibrant and it had a large number you know, of an Indigenous patients. And one thing that I really noticed was just the sense of community And the large number of family members that would travel long distances just to be with their family members and be there in support. And um, having been in in other intensive care units, um, I've never seen anything quite like the intensive care unit in Darwin in that you really are dealing with um, entire family networks in a way that, you know, is really quite amazing. From there, I um, headed to Melbourne and completed my anaesthetic training at the Austin and really loved that. Um, I don't think I ever answered your question with why anaesthesia, but as a junior doctor, the anaesthetists are at the end of a lot of the um, uh, emergency pathways. You know, we, we used to carry the, the oxy, the Oxford handbook, the yellow handbook. Uh, I'm sure it's all carried online now. But at the end of every sort of major crisis in the Oxford handbook, it would be called the anaesthetist. And I'd often think, oh, I really need to know what they know. So that was, I, I guess, some of the reasoning for wanting to be in anaesthetist. But there's certainly a number of amazing clinical scenarios. One I remember in working in a trauma centre in Sydney where a patient had, had very Unfortunately, fallen from quite a height, and uh, this anesthetist came along and secured the airway in a circumstance where I really didn't see how it was possible. But the the ability, I guess, of anesthetist to turn chaos into order and sort of provide some stability for others to be able to make other decisions um, about the care of our patients is, is really quite amazing. One of the things that I guess is not thoroughly understood about anaesthesia is that we, we really engage with patients and consumers at a time when they're really vulnerable. And we do get involved in a lot of the planning and, and sort of getting people prepared for, for what is, you know, one of the top 10 significant days in their life when they go in for surgery. Um, And so, yeah, that that is something that I really love, you know, the ability to provide some um, assurance and guidance and sort of collaborative decision-making with patients as they go through that journey. And, uh, and then there's, there's lots of other things I could, I could talk to with anaesthesia, but yeah, it's been a fabulous specialty.
1: Tanya, I just want to take you back a bit there to the Antarctic. Were there any clinical scenarios there that were quite specific to the Antarctic that you might not see here in Brisbane, for instance?
0: Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I um, oh, the one I'll talk to, um, is the uh, midwinter's day. So, you know, there's not a lot of light in Antarctica, in the middle of winter Um, and a lot of things happen around midwinter's day in terms of celebrations but we were all standing there uh, at the Casey sign which is a big sign that you could climb all over for the midwinter's photo and uh, and I remember um, one of the expeditioners coming up and saying to me I've got a toothache Um, and I remember thinking I bet it's his upper teeth because they're harder to work on. (laughs) And uh, and anyway, it was an upper tooth, and you know he he'd sort of been um complaining of of, of a sore tooth, um and uh, you know it it had stopped him stopped him sleeping the the night before, anyway. So I got together uh, with my dental assistant, being the carpenter, and um we we had a look, um at, you know at at the expeditioner's problem, and uh, and came to the conclusion that we we needed to do some more investigations and speak to the uh, dental hospital in Melbourne – uh, had really good contacts there from our five days of, uh, of training. So we um, w- we decided that we, we needed to do an x-ray and it was at the time where I, we needed to do x-rays with developer and fixer in a dark room. So with my uh, radiography license that I had um, recently acquired after training, we set about to do these x-rays and uh, in the dark room, I can tell you, Rebecca, that I was one delighted junior doctor to actually have teeth in the x-ray image. <laughs> when it was, was there. And uh, and then I took a photo of that on my digital camera and sent it through to the dental hospital. Our conversations started off with, I think it was MSN Messenger or something, something with a very low bandwidth at the time. So we ended up just having a chat by phone. And for those who are dentists listening, uh, there was, I remember it to this day, periapical rarefaction. And um, that indicated irreversible pulpitis that required a root canal. And I uh, had never trained to do a, root canal oh so that goodness. was um quite a, a bit of news anyway that turns out and uh, and I'm sure I'm going to get um feedback about this one but it <laughs> turns out there's about 10 steps uh we wrote them all down the carpenter and I and then set about putting out the the bits and bobs that we needed for each and every one of those steps in terms of sterile equipment and the like and then brought the expeditioner in to really go through the story and you know I open disclosure let him know that I'd never really done one of these before but we were in it together and it would be okay um, and so we, we did all of that. Uh, I think we started the root canal at about maybe midday or it might have been early afternoon and finished uh, at about 10 o'clock at night. Oh. So it took us quite a bit of time. You know, for, for those who don't like going to the dentist, you imagine <laughs> sitting in the chair for ages. And it was it was a beautiful experience for for us, I guess. You know, maybe not so much for the, the expeditioner, but, you know, at one point he sort of said, oh, I'm not really sure. Sure, And the, the carpenter sort of said, you know, don't worry, buddy, just hold my hand. We'll do it together. Anyway, we, we got through that. And early the next morning, um, the expeditioner came to the medical suite at about sort of seven o'clock and I, I was there, I don't know whether I was cleaning up or just hadn't slept or something, yeah. but he came down and when I saw him, I th- my first thought was, oh no, you know, he's got pain and it's, uh, it's not been successful Uh, But no, he'd brought me a chocolate cake and he'd actually stayed up overnight and made this chocolate cake to thank me because he wasn't in any more pain. Um, And that was kind of like the lived experience of being in this beautiful community that we would sort of, you know, work together, get things done. And um, for anyone who's considering sort of taking a a step uh, in their career, whether it's a medical career, nursing career, in healthcare and doing those kinds of things, you know, I've only got positive Experiences from those, and would only ever give positive advice about taking the time to do those things. Have you had to perform a root canal since? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> I would say, uh, from a scope of practice point of view, it uh, w- would not be be for me. But it, it lasted for the whole year, and in fact, I think he um, he went back, you know, a year or two later to his dentist to get it properly done. But amazing there's an opportunity to be able to sort of do those things and contribute to a
1: community like that, yeah. As you said, you're the Director of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital. What interested you in moving into the administrative side of your profession where you could influence more at that system level?
0: I've moved to the Sunshine Coast largely because my mother uh, moved and retired to the Sunshine Coast. I came back to Queensland and mum moved to such a beautiful place and we had started our family and really needed her support. Um, So basically I just go wherever mum goes. Um, And and on arrival uh, in the Sunshine Coast working as an anaesthetist, um, I did get involved in the establishment of of a trauma service for the Sunshine Coast. and, uh, And, you know, I could see having come from the Austin and then also working at Royal Melbourne in my anaesthetic fellowship, Royal Melbourne was a, a trauma centre and I could see some opportunities to, to bring some of that sort of trauma service processes into Nambour Hospital at the time. I, I sort of got about with a group of other clinical care clinicians in various specialties and we really worked really closely together to develop a trauma service that really we could take to the new hospital, the Sunshine Coast University Hospital that was in the planning stage at that time. That was really one of my first forays into working with other specialties to try to really do something different and establish something and understand what the barriers were and how, how do you get something done uh, in a health system? How, how do you make the case that something's a priority? And for, for this particular one in trauma services, they're often consult liaison services. They don't um necessarily perform activity within and of themselves and so there's there's it's it's often difficult to sort of make the the value case there so that was interesting and uh, enjoyable to really start to do things that weren't there before and see some of the benefits that that came from that and to do that with the other critical care specialties was really good and with the other disciplines so there was a really strong is often nursing led those services so Uh, Really having really great nursing leadership involved was just excellent. That project really started to form up to be quite large and I was sort of feeling like I was missing some project management skills in that, Uh, just trying to keep things sort of together and on schedule and how how do you record this and surely there's a tool for this. At the time, the New South Wales Health Redesign School was in existence and Queensland had provided a position there. That was sort of in the in the early days where Queensland was establishing its own quality improvement network that's quite mature today. But back then I, I went down to the ACI, the New South mm-hmm. Wales Redesign School, and really took that project to them and did that project management stuff utilizing a lot of clinical redesign principles and really applying those redesign methodologies and getting really good results. By sort of really going with it, it was super enlightening, and it really made me feel like, oh, you know, if we could just do this, we could do we, we could apply this to anything, and if we could really, you know, work to define the problem and really start to understand it, a much better chance of finding a solution, and much better chance of of really not wasting our time and uh, and you know, really coming to this conclusion that reliable delivery, delivery, you know, to prioritize something and reliably deliver it uh, was so important in the system. So having that had that experience. I moved into the role of deputy director in the anesthesia department and then really got some interest in digital health and could really see the benefit of that. And so I think a little bit too noisy in meetings or something that I found myself as the clinical lead for the digital health projects that we had at the time. And, And one of the main ones was the IMR rollout at our new hospital, the Sunshine Coast University Hospital. Those different things gave me the opportunity to interact with statewide bodies and also gave me the opportunity to work with project managers. You know, as a clinician, I had this really lucky circumstance of being um, matched up with a project manager, you know, to, to work sort of as a duo and offer as a trio with a senior nursing leadership and uh, and in IMR also pharmacy. And we would just be able to do things because we had this sort of combined knowledge and skill that I had never seen before. And the way that meetings could work that were really effective and that, that deliverables could actually be delivered and that we could work and do things in a timeframe and come in on budget and things like that were really awesome And some of these digital projects had really big price tags and lots of uh, scrutiny around them and the ability really to be able to work with some of the challenges that existed there in terms of how do we overcome A budgetary problem or how do we overcome a clinician engagement issue where the clinicians are just not seeing the value for that. And there's plenty of places in digital health where things just don't make sense to clinicians. Some we need to sort of roll on with, others we need to sort of fundamentally address. Those digital projects and that redesign, those redesign skills and methodologies have really been very useful, both in engaging on a state
1: level around digital health, but also in quality improvement in anaesthesia. You've been very involved in digital health, Tanya. What have you been able to influence in that space? One of the things I have seen in digital health is the benefit of strategy. And I think that's
0: something that the digital health environment benefits from. When we can all understand what we've kind of got to do, it's amazing how the system can work around to achieve it. There's the strategy side of it and then there's the courage to stay the course because whenever you're implementing anything or undertaking something new, there's going to be challenges along the way. And I'm not saying stay the course to the, you know, the exclusion of dealing with those things, but sometimes we really do need to go through with things and not sort of stop along the way and really make the case for why maybe 80% or 90% of what we want is better than nothing at all. And so I guess in, in terms of the things that I've been a part of that I'm really proud of, certainly digital transformation both in the in the, the health service but also being part of what happens in the state is something I'm really proud of and certainly the ability to get things done on a broader scale with others is really important. But I think it's fundamentally based on having good collaboratively developed strategy that is understood by a large number of people because that is an incredible accelerator of change when we we all kind of get what has to has to happen. The other thing I'd probably mention just in terms of things that I'm proud of is really the, the ability to lead a, a happy team, particularly a clinical team. You know, m- my own one uh, in anaesthesia, I really care about the team that I work with. I really have a high degree of respect and belief in them. And hopefully um, we're, we're a sta- seen as a stable unit that are a referential point for a lot of our colleagues. And the, the ability to have a low barrier for referral and be a point within an organisation of, of access and support when people have trub- troubles, you know, whether it's a junior doctor who needs support, our nursing colleagues in recovery, um, surgical colleagues and the like. So that that's something I think that is really important in our our environment, our people are so important and the ability to work with consumers to really turn on its head what it is we're trying to do to get that right and then to be able to work with clinical teams. What I have found with clinicians is that that they're a group of people who are not short of an opinion, highly intelligent humans and incredibly susceptible to reason. Given a reasonable case and an overall sensible ambition, most clinicians will sort of come along on the journey if it makes somewhat sense in, in an environment that sometimes doesn't make too much sense. Yeah, so I think that's something that I'm really proud of. I'm really proud of being able to engage with clinicians, both in anaesthesia
1: but more broadly when we've been doing those digital health um, implementations. In early 2022, you'll become the fourth chair of the Queensland Clinical Senate. What will your initial focus be in the role? One of the things that I really want to do
0: is understand the environment. Alex Markwell has just been a fantastic chair of the clinical senate, really big shoes to fill. And I've had a wonderful opportunity to have a handover, which we're going through right now and understanding, you know, who's who in the zoo and how the, how the sort of system works. But uh, what really matters to me is understanding what our clinicians really want and need and what the consumers really want and need. We see examples of provider-based design and we really need to think about things from a consumer perspective, not just because it's a nice thing to do or a good thing to do, but because it's absolutely essential to nutting out the difficult challenges uh, that we see along the way. When we put in something new, if we look at it just from within our health system, we, we tend to solve the problems that we can solve. We, we solve the things that are within the locus of our control. But when you look at it, from a consumer's perspective, you know how do I know about that, and where do I get that information from, and how does that information get to my GP, and 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 how do I understand what what options are available to me? They are really tricky things for health services um, and health systems to solve because they involve uh, moving within um, various agencies, but they're absolutely. The- the most important thing to solve. So there's such a sense to being able to design things around uh, the consumer and the needs of consumers, because that's what it's all about.
1: Tanya, in recent times, you did your MBA. How did that come about? I'm someone who, you
0: know, gets a lot of joy out of diversity and variety. I think I was deputy director at the time um, of anesthesia in the Sunshine Coast and I'd got myself into, into a meeting with some business types and had no idea what was going on. You know, I didn't understand the language that we would. There was a lot of chatter about balance sheets and contracts and the like and I was just backing right out of there. I'm thinking I just need to say nothing here and, uh, and get out quickly before I, uh, commit, uh, my unit or the health service to something that we, we shouldn't have. So I, I came away from that meeting and said, oh, look, I'm, I'm missing something here. And uh, yeah, I don't want to go back into another meeting like that, um, uh, with at least not understanding the vernacular and the, um, and, and the, the, terms. So I, uh, I thought about that and thought, oh, well I do this or that, or maybe do a bit of a health management or, you know, whatever. But my sister was the one who gave me some really good advice, which was, you know, stay broad. Don't, don't forget that there's learnings um, outside your craft area. Why don't you do something, you know, like an MBA or something really sort of broad. Do it in, in your local area. For, for me, I did it in Brisbane. Get to know people and, and get to know some perspectives from the outside. And that was really, really fabulous um, advice. I did that MBA and I would recommend to anyone who within their sort of vocational career is sort of thinking about filling their toolbox with a few other other things. I'd highly recommend something really broad like like that. I had the opportunity to do a couple of prior to COVID, some overseas stints um, at various universities overseas. And I had this wonderful opportunity to do um, a leadership course at Harvard. And the lecturer was, you know, like a campaign advisor for Obama type type person. You know, some of the, the insights um, at that time, you know, on leadership. And, and th- that, that's just one view. There's many um, different perspectives on it, but uh, it was just phenomenal, phenomenal, and nothing that I had ever kind of heard before. And, and the way that was taught was just amazing. So, uh, you know, those opportunities that exist sort of beyond the health system, I'd, uh, you know, thoroughly encourage people to take up.
1: You're obviously very busy, Tanya, between your leadership roles, your work, studies, sailing, and being a mum. How do you look after your mental health and well-being? For me, I'm sort of an activity-based person, so um, I do get a lot of enjoyment
0: from my family and uh, a lot of enjoyment from sailing, and uh, and I often combine the two. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, getting out there on the water uh, for me is fantastic because I often am involved in competitive sailing and there's just no bandwidth to think about anything else. Um, So I guess it's a bit of remedial therapy, but I really take the time and um, make sure that I craft out enough time to be with my family family, but also um, out on the water. Should we be watching out for you in the Sydney to Hobart this year? Oh, look, I came so close this year, Rebecca. Um, No, I I was actually part of a team that was competing this year, but uh, owing to COVID uncertainty, uh, it's not happening.
1: But yeah, no, watch this space, always out there. Tanya, it's been really wonderful talking with you and congratulations on your appointment with the Senate and I look forward to working with you. Thanks very much.
0: I really hope that we can add value and drive some change. It's wonderful.